Turn to First Thessalonians chapter 1. If I were to ask you, how many of you think that one of the greatest problems in Christianity today is idolatry? Most of you are like, mm, probably not. There are a lot of problems, but idolatry, nah, we don't even really talk about that. And yet, um, idolatry actually happens to be one of the greatest problems because it's actually one of the greatest problems in our hearts. Now, when we talk about idolatry, um, you know, we're thinking, okay, we think of like little figurines and they're kind of weird looking. And, and people back then used to bow down to these little rocks and these little stones and, and these little figurines that they kind of had. Uh, and that's kind of what we think about when we think about idolatry. But actually, idolatry, although it does include that, is substituting a created thing for God and actually putting it at the center of one's life. And maybe it's just a simple definition of an idol. It's just anything, any attitude, any belief, any God that so captures a person's attention and allegiance so that the true God does not have preeminence. Anything that does that, that's an idol. So now it doesn't have to be a graven image, but it can. But it's anything that displaces God where you sense your fine love, your sense of purpose, identity, peace, security. He's like the rock. Whatever that is, whatever that individual or that thing is, that, if it's not the one true God, it's actually idolatry. And uh, whatever is providing your sense of joy and peace, comfort and sense of security, whatever that is, is actually your God. Now, we always think about stones and people going down, worshiping like before a totem pole or these figurines. But the Bible actually makes it clear that idols actually exist in our hearts. Like, for instance, God told the prophet Ezekiel, I want you to tell these people that are coming to you this. And listen to this. This is from Ezekiel chapter 13, verse 4 and following. Therefore, this is God speaking, speak to them and tell them, thus says the Lord God. Any man of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart, you see that? Puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity and then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will be brought to give him an answer in the matter in view of the multitude of his idols. In order to lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are, and this is what idolatry does, he says, who are estranged from me, through all their idols. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent and turn away from your idols and turn your faces from all your abominations. That's what God thinks of idolatry, calls it an abomination. And they really, they reside in our hearts. We could safely say this. A life not filled with God is probably filled with idols. A life not filled with God is probably filled with idols. Now, I'm not really worried that you are going to go to some garage sale and find a $3 figurine and just make that the center of your life and start bowing down to it. Well, now that I'm looking around, maybe a few of you, but for the most of you, I'm, I'm not too worried about that. That's probably not going to happen. But I actually am concerned that idols have actually made entrance into the hearts of people. Believers, when good things become God things, 
you've got an idolatry problem. When you are finding your source of happiness and peace in good things like career and playing sports or a particular hobby or pastime or even bad things, when they take the place of God, you know what you've got? You've got an idolatry problem. What happens when God completely turns our lives around? What occurs? Well, if you've got your Bibles open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, he actually lays it out. Look at verse 9. You might want to put a mark by this verse. It is so powerful. He says, Paul writes, for they themselves report. We keep hearing this as we're traveling. They report about us what kind of reception we had with you, how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. So what takes place when God completely turns a life around? First of all, there's a turning to God. You see that in verse 9? You turned to God. That word turn, uh, in a physical sense, it means to turn around. In a spiritual sense, it denotes moving in an opposite direction. It's the idea of repenting. You change direction. You go 180 degrees differently. What they did is they actually saw God for who he is. They began knowing God through the gospel. Jesus was presented to them. Messiah, Lord, lived a perfect life, died as the substitute bearer of sin, dies in our place, and rises again. That he's the Lord of the universe. They, they actually started hearing and knowing God, specifically knowing about Jesus. But it was more than just knowing these truths. What happened is they began trusting God, believing in Jesus, like literally committing their life to him. And with that, there is a, a growing heart of of loving God for who he is. This is what took place. They recognized that their past life of idolatry, those idols, what they had in their hearts, maybe what they had in their house, couldn't fulfill, couldn't forgive, and couldn't free them. But in Jesus, they found there was life, freedom, forgiveness, and fulfillment. What happens when God turns a life around is he... He literally turns you to himself. But second, he also turns you away from idols. There is a turning to God, just like the text says, but you see that? For they themselves report what kind of reception we had with you, how you turned to God, and you turned to God from idols. You used to be idolatrous, but now you know the living God. Now, Idolatry was extremely prevalent in first century Rome. And in Thessalonica, I mean, we're 50 miles away from Mount Olympus, where supposedly all these gods kind of hang out and live. And what the Romans did is they basically adopted all the Greek gods. And so you had Zeus and Asclepius and Aphrodite and Dionysus and her drunken revelry. And you've got Demeter. You've got these different gods. And they adopted them. And they had worship that went to them. And they had idols of them. But you also have... The, in the Roman Empire, the emperors themselves declared themselves to be a god. Even in Thessalonica, you have a temple to Caesar Augustus and his descendants where he is to be worshipped. So idolatry was just a way of life. That's how you functioned. And really, in their worship of these various gods, they found regeneration, immortality. They were looking for self-respect, relief from ills, misfortune, the promise of sexual fulfillment in some of their uh, practices of worship. 
And this is the culture in which they live. You've got homosexuality, rampant. You've got heterosexual immorality, sex outside of marriage. That, that was just a way of life. This was the culture in which the gospel came forth. But they had turned away from idols. You see, whatever your heart clings to is your God. Whatever your heart clings to is your God. Interesting, there are some Jewish philosophers, as they study the scriptures, they actually present the idea that they think the central principle of the Bible is the rejection of idolatry. They said that every counterfeit God of the heart a person could choose, love, sex, success, money, power, all of those have a biblical presentation of how they ultimately fail. In essence, they show the breakdown that comes from idolatry and the real need for forgiveness. It's wonderful because idolatry, when experienced, points out the great need for the Savior. John Calvin is the one who says, the heart is an idol factory. Your heart, my heart, they conjure up, they produce idols that become so very prevalent in our life. And something becomes an idol when you just keep turning over to it, over and over again. When stress and boredom hits, if you don't have the one true God as the focus of your life, your idols, they'll step in and try to fix you or help you or heal you. So whether the activity be shopping or drinking or taking drugs, we talk about, you know, like shopping therapy, right? It might be shopping idolatry. Because you're looking for these experiences to fill a void. So, for instance, you can have a relationship, whether it's real or imagined, it becomes your focus. You can have a fantasy world that you live in, and what happens is you focus on your idol and you displace God. Friends, that is a heart issue. What are these idols of the heart? Well, I'd like to this morning give you like a brief list. Um, I want to just kind of lay out what are these modern-day golden calves that reside in our hearts that are competing for the focus and allegiance that's due to God. Now, I'm going to give you some of my sources. There's a guy by the name of Pastor Justin Buzzard and then Pastor Dr. Tim Keller. They've done quite a bit of writing on this, and I'd like to just give you some of the categories that they have of exposing idols in life. And if you're thinking that you're going to just come to church and like sing some songs, pray a little bit, hear a nice little... Bible message, just go on our merry way. This Sunday and next Sunday are not those Sundays. We're going to dive deep. It's going to get, like, really quiet in here if it was any parallels to first service. And there's going to be a lot of thinking. Because I want to talk about the idols of the heart. I want you to really think about it. Ask God to address it. Bring these things to life in your understanding if indeed they need to be addressed. Let me give you first one. Control idols. You know that you have a control idol if your greatest nightmare is uncertainty. Life only has meaning. You only have worth if you have power, control, mastery, a manipulative influence over people, my, like your body or your school or your business. You know that you have a control idol when your greatest nightmare is like humiliation or embarrassment. Like anything but that, man. I, I can't be humiliated. Related to a control idol is perfectionism. And I consider myself a recovering perfectionist. But it's the idea that 
everything has to fall into place your way. Let me give you another idol of the heart. Approval idolatry. You know that you have an approval idol if you're driven by the fear of rejection. Life only has meaning. I've, I've only have worth if I'm loved, I'm respected, especially with males. I'm, I'm only worthy if I'm loved, I'm respected, I'm praised by teachers, coaches, parents, fans, media. Then I know that then it's okay. When it comes to like approval idols, um, Madonna, I think you're probably familiar with her. She gave a really helpful confession in a magazine called Vanity Fair of what this looks like in her life. And I want you to just listen to what she said. I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feelings of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. And I'm sure some of you are caught in this very same merry-go-round. She continues, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. And my struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. What do we got there? We have an approval idol. The early church father, Augustine, said this, Our hearts are restless until we find our rest in God. And that's how it works, friends. Your idols will wear you out. They will always disappoint. There is no rest, though they promise some sort of fulfillment or satisfaction. Let me give you another idol. Image idolatry. The idea that life only has meaning, I only have worth, if I have a particular kind of physical look or body image or status. This is really prevalent among females, and it's driven by the media and peer pressure, especially teenage girls in their 20s. I mean, this is just like a massive weight, a huge pressure to conform. And now, they're not going to physically bow down to some sort of statue of Aphrodite, but what happens is many women today, they're driven to depression, eating disorders, because of this obsessive concern over body image. And related to kind of like image idolatry is the idea that we have to portray like, I'm the perfect person, or we have the perfect family. It's not about what's inside. It's about what it looks like on the outside. I mean, you might be a huge mess, but you're going to be, you have a certain image that you're trying to convey. You're going to dress a certain way, act a certain way. You want to be associated with certain things. It doesn't matter what's going on inside of you because all that matters is my image, right? And what people think. And so it's kind of like this focus on what does it look like to others? This is image idolatry. Howard Hendricks uh, spoke of a student that was in his class, came from a really wealthy home. And um, this kid said, my parents always would tell us everything in our home is either a tool or an idol. Everything is either a tool or an idol. Let me give you another idolatry. And that is achievement idolatry. The idea that you only have meaning, life only has worth if you're being recognized or affirmed for your accomplishments, or your wins, or your records, or your trophies, or rewards, or your academic performance, or your financial success in your eyes, or how you're perceived. But it's all about achievement. And I'm pretty sure we're familiar with this. 
that, and this is pretty prevalent among guys. What you want to do is like, you know, got myself a nice job, live in a decent house, I have a nice car. But in actuality, if you didn't have those things, you would feel like you're nothing. Because those things are like everything to you. That's your worth. It's just kind of what you produce. And a lot of men actually feel like total failures. So what do you do? Well, at least I got my job or I can provide this or I live here or I'm driving this these days. I uh, talked to one guy and he told me that he would move anywhere if they offered him more money. It was always about the money. Didn't care. Whoever's given me the biggest paycheck, not like he didn't have already plenty. He's well off. But if you offer more money, you got him. If you think like, uh, well, if you're a pastor or a missionary, well, then you're exempt from this. You know, after all, you're like vocational ministry, right? So you would never have a struggle with these sort of things. If you actually think that that's true, you would be dead wrong. Several years ago, I'm talking with one of my friends. I won't give his name, but um, you would know him. Some of you would. I, he's a pastor of a very large church. And he, uh, he had actually had a health crisis in his life. Actually, could have lost his life. It was that bad. I meet with him in his recovery. And he looks me in the eyes and tells me that his ministry had become his mistress. And he basically sacrificed everything for her. What you see there is that is a achievement idol that was very prevalent. It looks good. Ministry is a good thing, right? But it's a bad thing when it keeps you from Jesus. It's a bad thing when the ministry itself becomes the God thing. And it can kind of get a little blurry. Chris Everett, who probably is one of the greatest female tennis players of all time, her career from 1972 to 1989, she was just like the champion. She was just dominant. She gave um, this an article in Good Housekeeping, and she talked about why she worked so hard on the tennis court and why she was just so wrapped up in her job of being a tennis champion. This is what she wrote. She said, I had no idea who I was or what I could be away from tennis. I was depressed and afraid because so much of my life had been defined by my being a tennis champion. I was completely lost. Winning made me feel like, and I want you to listen to what she says, winning make me, made me feel like I was somebody. It made me feel pretty. It was like being hooked on a drug. I needed the wins, the applause, in order to have an identity. You see, what we've got here is we've got an achievement, success, power. What we've got is idolatry just dominating this woman's life. And uh, I just want to say this. If you're a parent or you're an athlete, you want to be very careful you don't foster this kind of idolatry. See, what happens is um, it doesn't have to be sports. You could like, push your kid to be like the absolute superior one in music, theater, drama, dance, and really it's all about how they perform. And what happens is you may have good intentions and you want the best for them and you got these ideas, how they're going to be the next uh, you know, great thing in the world. They're going to they're gonna really make a mark for themselves. They're going to get this college scholarship. So it's all focused on this. It could be a really good thing. All these things are good things, but they become God things. And what happens is they see, the kid begins to see it. It's all about my achievement and my success that gives me worth. And when that happens, it's like Chris Everett's words. 
to feel pretty, to feel worthy, to feel like somebody, friends, that's actually idolatry. Whether you're a CEO and you're willing to sacrifice anything it takes, all your time, you're willing to sacrifice your family, whatever it is, if it's driving your behavior and taking the place of God, that's idolatry. Let me give you another. Race or culture idolatry. The idea that life only has meaning or I only have worth if my race or my state or team or university or country or culture is ascendant and is recognized as superior. Okay? And you see this in racism, uh, nationalism. It's what happens. It's, it's ethnic pride that actually turns bitter or oppressive. When you've got this taking place, you've got idolatry. And we've got some examples of this. Like Nazi Germany, they believe we are the German superior race. And we have people in our midst, these Jews that are inferior. And we need to annihilate them. And they did. Or they tried to. It is actually not too far from what you see from what Iran is saying today. We are going to obliterate them from the face of the earth. And anybody who might want to even try to be friends with them, right? Probably not the kind of country you want to make a real good agreement with, right? Because you know why? They're being dominated by idolatry. Uh, Let me give you another one. Comfort idolatry. The idea is that I, I must have these pleasurable experiences or a particular quality of life. The greatest nightmare would be stress and demands upon me. I, I, uh, uh, uh. It's all about me being comfortable. I don't, I don't want to mess with this because, after all, my comfort, my sense of getting what I want is most important. God's not in the equation so much. My comfort, that's all that's really important. Let me give you another one. Relationship idolatry. Life only has meaning or I only have worth if Mr. or Miss Wright is in love with me, right? I will really be something if they will love me or I can just be with them, right? And it drives behavior and it literally takes the place of God. And you see this relationship of idolatry takes a variety of forms. You can have like dysfunctional family systems like codependency where you you have someone who basically enables the dysfunctional behavior of another person because I just I just have to keep this relationship together. Okay? You got fatal attractions, people living through their children, okay? And this is relational idolatry. Nancy Ortberg has a friend that she says, This woman is in a really hard marriage. And she stressed how hard it was. But what this lady does is she fantasizes for hours each day about a particular guy at her church. And she just focuses on him. She just escapes and she thinks it's safe. Friends, what you've got is idolatry. Let me give you another. Theological idols. These are doctrinal errors that produce some sort of distorted view of God. And what ends up is that you end up worshiping a false god. So, for instance, you omit characteristics of God that you don't want because, after all, you're kind of shaping God into your image. So you don't want God to be sovereign, or you don't want the idea that God's a just God, that he actually has a wrath against sin. I don't want that. So we cut it out. Well, what happens is you're basically trying to cut out the character of God, of who he is, and you're going to end up with a God that's not the God of Scripture, who is the real, one true, living God. Other ways you see this are like uh, moralism, 
just kind of reducing the Bible to a bunch of do's and don'ts. You just do these things. Or elevating law over the gospel, okay? So this is, these are all examples of theological idols. Let me give you some others. Like, for instance, highlighting one particular gift, like teaching. Well, that's all that matters. You've got the gift of teaching. Or you see this in, like, some charismatic circles where it's all about speaking in tongues or being able to give prophecy. And that experience and the ability to do those things becomes the focus in essence, what you've got is theological idolatry. Let me give you another. Magic or ritual idols. This is where you're involving yourself with witchcraft or the occult. You're rebelling against the God of scriptures. You're trying to tap into another source of power. So you see this with um, witchcraft, the occult, um, fortune telling, Ouija boards, horoscopes. And you're like, no, no, I'm going to find strength, ability, power, insight, apart from this God of the Bible. Actually, what you're doing is you're tapping into power, all right, but it's demonic. It is idolatry. And these sort of things have been going on for a long period of time. Let me give you another. Sexual idolatry. This is like addictions to pornography. Um, you're looking for a sense of acceptance, your ideals of physical beauty. You're looking for intimacy, and you're going about it the wrong way. And what it does is that this idol just kind of grips you and perverts you. So you're willing to make sort of sacrifices. And really, it's kind of driven oftentimes by a sense of, I want to be approved. And what happens is you get folks that are just filled with shame and guilt because they wanted a person's approval so bad and they would do whatever they thought they needed to do. And now they're walking through the wreckage of that. What's gone on? Well, you've got sexual idolatry taking place. Let me give you a few more. Political economic idols. These are taking like the ideologies of the left or the right of libertarian. And you make absolute some aspect of a political order, and you make it the solution, right? God, you know, we're going to try, we want him to be a part of our party, so to speak, but it's what the real solution is this. And so what we do is we deify some political party, or worse yet, some candidate. Like, you don't think we've got to, we got enough history to know that no man can be the savior, but we seem to forget we got amnesia every election time, right? Or woman, she's going to come and rescue us. Come on, are you really? No, it's not going to happen. She can't do it. He can't do it. They may be helpful in government, but they're not the savior. But what happens is when you've got political or economic idols, you're going to deify some things like free markets or you demonize it or you do it to an individual or to a party. Really, these are idols. Let me give you another um, philosophical idols. What, is, what, what takes place with a philosophical idol is that you've got like systems of thought that are create, have some sort of created thing to be the problem with life. Instead of sin, no, oh, it's not sin, but it's got, this is the problem. And then what you say is that there is a human product or an enterprise that will be the solution of the problem. Not God's grace, but you've got the solution. So like an example of this would be like the European intellectuals in the late 19th century, century early 20th century. They basically bought into what Rousseau was saying about the views toward God, to the innate goodness of people. That human nature actually doesn't have this idea of original sin. No, no, no. They're really good. 
What they need is just better education and better socialization. That's the solution to our problems. And actually, you still see a lot of folks think that's all you have to do, as if that fixes humanity, which it doesn't. Let me give you another one, just a final idol. These are cultural idols. The idea of, like, in the West, the radical individualism. I need no one. I can do it on my own. I'm willing to forsake community, any sort of relationship, because, after all, I'm the individual. I can do it on my own. Or you see at the flip side of this, or in, like, cultures that use shame, and they make an idol out of family or their clan at the expense of individual rights. You see this in, like, Muslim-dominated areas or with Hindus, and they use shame. And it's a pretty prevalent tool to get people to conform, but all of this is idolatry. And what happens is, if you don't actually identify your idolatry and address it, it literally is going to consume you. So how do you identify counterfeit gods? How do you identify idols? If you don't actually identify it, you will never address it. Just like the doctor is always looking, okay, I see symptoms, but I want to get to the core, root issue. What is causing this? Well, that's what we got to do with idolatry. What is it? What are they? So how do you actually figure it out? You know, if you don't figure this out, your idols, they're going to have you exceed proper boundaries. They're going to ruin your health. They will even at times cause you to break laws because, after all, i got to get this. Or they'll even destroy your relationships. So how do you identify idols and counterfeit gods? Well, one thing you might want to look at is what is your greatest fear? What does that really say about what you worship? What's your greatest fear? There's a counselor by the name of David Paulson. He wrote a book called Seeing with New Eyes. He gives a series of x-ray questions to help identify what idols may be lurking in your heart. Let me give you a sampling. What do you worry about the most? What do you worry about all the time? What, if you failed or lost it, would cause you to feel that you did not even want to live? What do you do to cope? What do you daydream about? What makes you feel the most self-worth? Or what are you the proudest? For what do you want to be known? He gives this one. Early on in conversations, what do you want people to know about you? What is the thing that you want to be known for, identified by, and labeled with? Another, what are you asking God for, or what has God given you that, if he didn't answer or take away, would make you seriously contemplate leaving the faith? Or think about what Jesus said. Jesus said this, where your treasure, treasure is, there your heart will be also. In essence, follow the money. Where does, the, where does your money, where does it go? I mean, yeah, you've got, you got a house and you've got to pay for things, obviously. But could you look at your finances to actually show you who really or what really is God in your life? Uh, just one other. What is, what is your real, your real functional daily Savior? Who's going to get you through? What's going to help? Who's ultimately got your confidence or what got your confidence? That will help you identify if you perhaps have an idol. And these, these idols, you, they promise happiness, success, well-being, you're going to be well-liked, everything's going to be great. You think that your idols will love you, but they don't. They will not love you back. 
They're going to have a devastating effect on your life. You want to find out what they are. You see what happened for the Thessalonians? Their lives were radically changed by God. They went, they were turning to God, and they were turning away from idols. Do you see that? And notice what else. If you're going to see your life turned around by God, notice this. You want to turn over your life to Christ's service. You see that? You turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. They found their source of identity, peace, contentment, joy, forgiveness, no longer in idols, but in the one true God. He's living. The idols, those are dead, right? They may have a life of their own, so to speak, but they're dead. And they're false. God is true. And so what they are doing is they're finding that serving and worshiping God is the great antidote to idolatry in our lives. And not only were they, you see that they're working, but they're also waiting. Look at verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. They were waiting upon Jesus. Do you notice He's described as the one who is raised from the dead, once again reinforcing the deity of Jesus Christ. These Thessalonians didn't like, hey, you know, I got a bunch of gods. I think I'll add Jesus to him. No, no. They forsook all their other idols that they had in their life, and now they recognize Jesus for who he is. They found him to be life, Lord, liberty, hope, healing, and they focused on him. And so notice he rescues us from the wrath to come. This may mean he's going to rescue us from eternal punishment, which he does. You believe in Jesus, you will never face the punishment or the penalty for your sin. That is awesome news, especially for a guy like me. But it also references, when he talks about this coming wrath, God is going to bring a judgment upon the earth. If you've ever read the book of Revelation, chapter 6 through 19 talks about this intense tribulation. That is going to take place where God is literally going to judge the people of the world who will not have him. Deny that they're made in his image, created for his glory, they won't have him. There is a coming judgment. But if you believe in Christ, you're not going to face that judgment. Why? Like he talks about in 1 Thessalonians 5, God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation. Because Jesus is the one who rescues. And so you see what these people are doing? They're serving the Lord, and they're waiting for Jesus. You've heard the phrase... Well, you know, that person, they're so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good. You heard that? Yeah. Actually, when you're really heavenly minded, when you really believe that Jesus is the solution to the problems of this world, you're not only waiting and looking for him to intervene and to show up, but you're actively at work. Those who are most heavenly minded, truly heavenly minded, focused on Jesus, have a tendency to be the ones who are most invested. You you find that correlation. So, friends, it comes down to this. What we revere, we begin to resemble, either for ruin or restoration. Or you might say it this way. We become like what we worship. Or to say it another way, your devotion determines your direction. What you want to do is you want to keep Christ at the center of your lives. And that's going to keep idols from distorting you. You see, it's in the gospel, the good news about Jesus. Everything that we want, everything that we need, 
We need forgiveness. We need approval. We need justification. We need affection. We need achievement. We need freedom. We need hope. We need righteousness. We need rescue. I don't can't do that. I don't care what the TV is telling you. They cannot do it. There's one, and his name is Jesus. And these Thessalonians found him, or better yet, they were found by him. And their devotion to him, you know what? That determines the direction of their lives. That's why they're living and behaving the way they are. I think many of you are familiar with a guy by the name of David Robinson, an amazing basketball player, two-time NBA champion, Olympic gold medalist. Um, he retired in 2003. Let me give you a little bit of the backstory. When David Robinson graduates from the Navy, as the Na- he graduates as the nation's top basketball player, he was picked up the number one overall pick by the San Antonio Spurs in the 1987 draft. And then he spent the next two years finishing his military um, commitment. When he comes out, finishes his commitment, he's 24 years old, he comes to the Spurs. The prior season, before Robinson shows up, the Spurs had a dismal record of 21 and 61, okay? He shows up the next year, show you just the force of this individual, they become a Western Conference power, and they go 56 and 26. Wow, kind of just flipped around. Robinson himself looked like he had it all. And this is in his own words. I was having great success on the court, but I didn't feel great. I felt like I was at the mercy of fans and everyone else. It was my whole identity. You get into that environment, and you start becoming that environment. And so here he is, and he's, he's a big success, but he's really miserable inside. He's living for this glory that simply doesn't satisfy and that really interesting, he has a conversation with a guy by the name of Greg Ball. He's the president of Champions for Christ. He's a pastor down in Austin. And apparently, Greg Ball is, was not intimidated by all of his success and the fact that he's a giant and probably could kill you by just grabbing your neck like that. You know, so he just, like, listen, he has this real conversation with him. And he, uh, he tells him, you're behaving like a spoiled kid. And he presents the gospel to David Robinson in some very real ways. And David Robinson, June 8th, 1991, he places his faith in Christ, and he actually later is baptized. And I want you to listen to his words of the change that was brought about. He says, of course, even after I became a Christian, I still felt the pressure of the grind of an 82-game schedule, expectations from the fans, constant scrutiny from the media, and the challenge of giving leadership to my team. They were all very demanding. But with all these pressures, I had to lean hard on God to help me keep on an even keel. I don't have to trust in what I can do. I just need to trust in what God can do through me. No longer trying to get it out of the idol. Now I'm just trusting in God. Friends, devotion determines direction. What will it be for you? Let's pray. Lord, we just once again want to thank you for the power of your word, especially like these verses. Just spell it out. What true transformation looks like. Turning to you. Turning away from idols. Whatever they might be. Sticks, stones, or idols that we've got in our heart that perhaps are dominating us. We can find joy, hope, fulfillment, forgiveness, peace in Christ. So God, right now, just even the quietness of this moment, would you, would you surface if there's any idols that need to be addressed and turned away from, forsaken? 
And for someone who has come here today who has never trusted in Christ, and now it's actually been defined that idolatry really is all that they know. They simply just pray with me and say, God, I turn from self and sin, from idols. And I trust in Jesus. I need life, I need forgiveness, and I ask him to be the Lord of my life. And so, God, may our lives be lived for your glory. Would you find our hearts just overwhelmed by your grace and your goodness, leaving no room for idols to have their wicked way. For your glory, we ask in Jesus' name.